When we sin, it is our natural response to try to cover our tracks. It's been happening since the Garden of Eden when they were trying to hide from God and covering themselves with fig leaves. We don't really want anyone knowing our sinfulness. And it's not like we want to herald it either. But it's our natural response to hide it and to cover it. Some people will make transactions, uh, purchases that their spouses are not aware of. Uh, Some people will uh, intake pornography and try to cover their tracks. The list goes on and on of the different kinds of offenses that we would try to cover up so that no one would know. These offenses, whether they are known publicly or unknown, bring about a breach in fellowship. Sin always brings hurt. It always brings hurt. Hidden sin can impact every part of our being. Our emotions, our physical body, and certainly our spiritual relationship with the Lord. When it comes to our relationship with God, when we sin, we must address that sin. We cannot leave it unaddressed. And the Scriptures give us great clarity about how to address our sin. And we're in the vicinity of that passage in our Bibles. In 1 John chapter 2, which we're studying this morning, right before we get to that, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, told us about how to not dwell in darkness. God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, but walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In order to be walking in the light, and uh, there, there, there may be something that needs to be addressed. And so He gives us that pathway toward addressing it in verse 9 of chapter 1. Look at what it says. If we confess our sin, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The reason that that passage of Scripture is effective and truthful is because of the work of our Advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the one who's demonstrated righteousness. He's the one that has lived out righteousness. He's the one who has attained a righteousness through His obedience to give to us as a a gift upon our turning from our sin and turning to Him for salvation. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. When we think of an advocate, we rightly think of a legal representative, a defense attorney, And that's one of the concepts that's going to come up in these two verses we study this morning. He is our advocate. So typical human behavior ignores, covers, denies, or minimizes our sin. But Jesus Christ, the legal representative for believers, does not use legal maneuvers to deny our sin. He admits our sin, pronounces judgment against our sin, and ultimately judges our sin through His own substitutionary death. 
Now, don't criticize me for my grammar in the sentence, all right? If you get caught up on the grammar, you're missing the point. Just focus on the content. The content is Jesus doesn't use legal maneuvers to cover our sin. He instead condemns our sin in his own body on the cross. Our sin is legally, definitively dealt with. No sin is left unaddressed. Every sin receives a just recompense of reward. And for us that know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, we've turned from our sin, we've seen its gravity, and we've turned from it and turned to Jesus Christ. We've we've received forgiveness of that sin. That sin has been judged in His body. We've been granted eternal righteousness. And we are free, free from the legal demands of the law. John's message has a lot to do with fellowship. First, fellowship with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, fellowship with one another. As second, uh, First John chapter 2 begins, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he starts by saying, My, my little children, I've told you what I've told you in these first ten verses so that your life would be not marred by sin. So what are these things? These things in chapter 1, and this is just a summary. You could divide this out a little bit differently if you so chose. But here's the idea. Fellowship with God results in joy in verse 4 of chapter 1. Fellowship with God is in community, verse 3 and 7. So we have fellowship with God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have fellowship with one another, Fellowship with God takes place in community. Fellowship with God in verse 5 demands purity. Fellowship with God in verses 7 through 10 demands mercy. We just spoke of that. And then verse 9 fellowship with God demands a perspective adjustment. And what do we mean by a perspective adjustment? Well, the word confess our sin is not simply saying, you know, here's my list of sins for today. Now bear with me, I'm not intending in any way to take lightly someone else's religious experience. I'm trying to show a difference. But some might go into a booth and have a religious person across that booth with a sheet in between and list their sins. They list their sins and the person on the other side of the booth lists the things that they need to do to kind of deal with those sins. We're not, this is not what we're talking about when we say confession. First of all, our confession isn't to a man. Our confession is to the Father Himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, a, bit, a major difference is we're not just listing our offenses. Well, on Monday I lied to my mommy, and on Tuesday I said a bad word to my uncle, and on Wednesday I disobeyed my teacher, and on Thursday I, I was speeding down the highway and cutting people off and getting very angry. So it's not just this list of things. If that is someone's conception of confession, they will not experience the freedom that comes from true confession to the Lord. Confession in the Greek is homo legeo. Homo, same, legeo, to speak, to speak the same, to see the same, to understand sin the way God sees sin, to have our perspective changed, to see the the vulgarness of our sin, to recognize when I'm cutting in my words to my friend or my friend, 
spouse or my child, I have not just hurt their feelings and been unkind and inappropriate toward them. I have offended a holy God. I need to see my sin as God sees my sin. As an offense. As a violation of the law. As, as a, a rebellion against God. This is the perspective change we're talking about. To see sin the way God does. And to, to come to hate our sin. Oh yes, it's so easy to hate the sin of our neighbor. It's so easy to hate the sin that, that takes place in our society. But we're talking about hating the sin that we cherish in our heart. If I cherish sin in my heart, the Bible says, the Lord does not hear me. So we must have our perspective toward our sin changed rather than just condemning the sin of others. Fellowship with God gives us the ability to see our sin for what it is like God does and to understand that in that sin, through confession to the Lord, there is forgiveness and freedom. But there's also a result of that perspective change. The result of understanding the ramifications of fellowship with God will dampen our passion for sin and enliven within us a hatred for sin. This morning we want to talk very briefly about three characteristics of fellowship with God. The first is this. Fellowship with God takes our attention away from our passions. Fellowship with God takes our attention away from our passions. Verse 1 again of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. Why would I not sin based upon these things? Because I see that God is light. And I see that my sin brings a breach into fellowship with Him. And I see that His merciful hand is available to forgive me for my sin. And that encourages me to not have a breach, but to reside in the light as He is in the light. We become those that hate our sin. That desire God's way. As we think of the joy of fellowship, the resultant community that takes place between us, the Father, the Son, and God's people, the mercy of that fellowship, we are amazed by grace. And that perspective should capture us. Think about the, the, the wording that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.14. It'll, it'll ring a bell, I think. The love of Christ compels us. The love that we've experienced from the Lord Jesus constrains us. There's a, a drive within us that arises out of knowing the unconditional, eternal love that comes from God. We think of uh, what Paul said at the end of the book of Galatians, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's capturing our minds. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verses 1-3 through on the screens to my left and right. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he uh, who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness 
lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable, abominable idolatries. He's giving us the same perspective. When we understand the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, we start to look at our old life differently. And we don't want to live that way. That's the old man, and that's the old way. We've been talking about that quite a bit in the book of Romans. The Old Testament writers used the phrase, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And the New Testament writers talk about it in, the, in lines of walking in the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, having Christ as preeminent. So there's a difference of phrase, phraseology between the Old Testament way of looking at this concept and the New Testament way, but the, the concept itself is the same. I want to take a look at a few verses of Scripture, if you'll travel with me, please. Psalm 36 to begin with. Now remember what we're talking about. I'm writing all these things to you, my little children, that you may not sin. And we're talking about the fact that the grace and mercy that we've received that results in fellowship with God and with one another encourages us to, to care more for those things that are right and less for those things that are sinful in our passions. And this comes as a result of having a right perspective of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is just that perspective. Look at Psalm 36 and verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs 8 and verse 13. We have another expression of the fear of the Lord recorded there. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Will you say that with me? Say the whole phrase with me. Ready? The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. One more time. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. That's a statement of fact. Right? That's not a command. That's a statement of fact. When we have a right appreciation and understanding and worship of the Lord, we also, at that same time, hate evil. Look at uh, Proverbs 16 and verse 6. I'm going to ask you to read the second half of this verse with me. I'll read the first half. When I get to the end, you read with me, please. Proverbs 16.6 By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. This is exactly what walking in the Spirit does. When we walk in the Spirit, we don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We turn away from evil. It's a work of God. This is a grace gift of God. And John finishes writing about fellowship with God and the mercy we've received and the grace we've received and the forgiveness and cleansing that we've received and God's holiness. All of these things he communicates in chapter 1. He starts chapter 2 and says, My little children, I'm telling you these things so you won't sin. Well, how do I not sin? Well, I come into a right relationship with the Lord and I, I yield myself fully to Him. I see Him as God and myself as not. What a wonderful change. And God graciously works that in the lives of His people. Head back with me please to the book of 1 John. We are those who have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And as those that have tasted that the Lord is gracious, we desire to spend our affections on the One who loved us and gave Himself for us. We know that song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth 
will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I don't know about you, but when I am watching football, I like football. I really like football. When I'm watching football, I like am so locked in. The most precious people in my life don't become less important to me when that happens. But sometimes they talk to me and I don't hear them. I'm, I'm dead serious. My wife will say something to me, and I'm like, uh, you're going to have to say that again. My, my, my little five-year-old unicorn will say something to me. Uh, I, I didn't get it because I'm locked in on something. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made a statement, and I, in, I will, in my fleshly days, Lord willing, if I don't lose my faculties, I will never forget the statement. God disappears to lust-glazed eyes. You know the opposite of that is also true? Lust disappears to God-glazed eyes. When He is our affection, when He is our treasure, when we are wrapped up and enraptured by His love and who He is, all the things of earth, they're of nothing. All those things that would, in another situation, tempt me, allure me, pull me, be hard for me. Nothing. Nothing. Not when I'm enraptured with Christ. I call you and I call myself to that kind of God focus. Really considering the glory of the One who has saved us from our sin, both temporally and eternally. And given us grace, both now for this day and forever and ever again. When we fellowship with God, the passions of this world become less and less. The problem is we struggle to always fellowship with God the way that we ought to. Head back, we're in 1 John. Fellowship with God is based upon the work of our Advocate. Fellowship with God is based upon the work of our Advocate. We're back in chapter 2 of 1 John and verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, let's stop there for just a second. Did chapter 1 say anything that would inform us about what he's saying here? Did chapter 1 tell us that when he says if anyone does sin, there is an expectation that there will be times of sin? Doesn't he already give us that information so that we are not thrown off guard when we are not God-glazed in our focus? We are not treasuring Christ the way that we ought to and we decide to indulge in our flesh? He's already prepared us for the fact that in this life, in our frailty, in our human sinful passions, there are times that we treasure something else instead of the Lord. He says, if you say you don't sin, you are a liar. And if you say you don't sin, you're going to call God a liar. So he's already prepared us to understand that we are not going to navigate through this life without sin. But in that same communication here, he's telling us we have something to help us when we do sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He fulfilled the plan of the Father. We're familiar with this. Remember Jesus said in John 4, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. We're also familiar with what comes in John 
Remember? It is finished. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. What was finished? What did He finish? What work was this? The work that was ordained before the establishment of the earth. God's eternal plan to save me. To save you from our sin. God's eternal plan to save us from our sin before He even created us. Take a look, please, at Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 11 and following. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for what? Sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's finished this work. It pleased the Father, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to bruise Him. God put Him to grief. When? When you make His soul an offering for sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. We are not talking, brothers and sisters, or friend, about a shady backroom deal. We're not talking about manipulating the law. We're not talking about loopholes and twisting justice. We're not talking about covering up offenses and covering up justice. To accomplish our eternal justification, our sins needed to be paid for. And a record of perfection needed to be imputed to our eternal record. This is what our Advocate has done. The Bible says He has made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The believer's permanent record has been changed. And the basis of that change, the basis of that forgiveness, the basis of that righteousness is the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is our advocate. And He is Jesus the righteous. Well, there's a lot more that could be said there. Fellowship with God, thirdly, demands a full treatment of our sins. That's what we get to in verse 2. Fellowship with God demands a full treatment of our sins. Verse 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is, speaking of Jesus the righteous, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is, uh, could be defined as the settlement of God's wrath against sin. The settlement of God's wrath against sin. He uses the same word later on in 1 John in chapter 4. Take a look there. And verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And if we really want to have a good understanding of it, and we do, we should also look at Romans chapter 3. Take a look there, please. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. In verse 23, the Bible says, For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by grace as a gift. Well, who's, who, who all? All that believe, right? All that believe. Through faith, excuse me, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're talking about this term propitiation. The settlement of God's wrath. It's based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? And it's... a granted to all those who have faith in Jesus Christ alone. When we trust Christ alone as our salvation, God has caused a final payment, a once-for-all payment, a settlement of accounts, so that that sin will never, never be attributed to me. It was already attributed. It was attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ when He was dying on the cross. There was a transaction that was made, and God placed my sin upon Him. And when Jesus paid that price, God's wrath against that sin was forever settled. That's propitiation. Jesus' blood provides a settlement of my debt. God is satisfied. Satisfied with the payment for my sin. No backroom deal. No shady business. No manipulation of justice. Just truth. Jesus stood in my place, condemned for me that I might have life. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 goes on to say, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You know, there's an expression, and perhaps you're familiar with it, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. It's probably coined a little bit more uh, fine-tuned than this. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ is sufficient for the sins of the whole world but it is efficient for those who believe. In other words, Jesus' death offers to a world around us salvation. But that salvation is applied to those who believe. And so the call in that thought is, have you trusted Christ? Have you believed the Gospel? So that that propitiation that's been offered to you can be applied to you so that your sins are forever settled and God will have forever given you freedom. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14, the Bible says that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. The propitiatory work of Jesus Christ offers to unredeemed man a stay of execution. It's a hold. It's a hold. Our neighbors have a hold. Judgment not yet. But they need to know Jesus. They need to know the Gospel. That's why God has caused us to stay here. That we might tell them the Gospel and demonstrate to them the Gospel. That they would understand that stay of execution only lasts so long. They will one day stand before a holy God and will give an account of themselves to Him. And if they stand there, dressed in their own righteousness, 
they will experience the full weight of the wrath of a holy and just God. But they're being offered in these days between now and then a call. Turn. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. He will forgive your sin. Your sin will never be brought up against you. Your sin will be removed as far as the east is from the west. Turn to Christ. He'll give you life and righteousness and a perfect and an enduring standing with God. You will spend eternity with God. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If our holy God can bear long with sinful humanity, shouldn't we be able to? Shouldn't we be able to endure this culture that waves their fist at Him, turns their back on Him, wants nothing to do with Him, and God is patient. His patience is a demonstration of what ought to be happening inside of us. That same forbearance that God passes over for a time should be demonstrated in our lives How many testimonies have you heard, read, or experienced in which God provided salvation to a person that you would never have imagined would be redeemed? You've heard it. You've read about it. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you're one of them. No one would ever believe I would be saved. Maybe you have that testimony. Well, so also, this is true of your neighbor. The people that you come in contact with at work. We must give people the gospel. Our salvation and our fellowship with God and one another is based upon the cleansing work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Have you trusted Him? Are you repulsed by your sin? Are you feeling a, a lessening desire toward your sin? I've written these things that you may not sin. And do you understand that your sin has been dealt with through the the advocate work of the Lord Jesus. He has settled it. He has taken care of it. He pleads our case, not through manipulation of justice, but in accordance with what He has accomplished in His righteousness. And our sins are settled. The debt of our sin has been settled. He's, He's the propitiation for our sin. And so, we rejoice in this for ourselves, and we proclaim it to those about us that others too might experience the forgiveness that we have and the righteousness we've been granted. Let's pray together. Father, You know what each one here needs. We ask that You would do Your work in each one of our lives. That we would follow You. That we would would be more interested in treasuring You than treasuring our own sinful passions. And that we would be ready to declare the glorious work of the Lord Jesus to our friends and neighbors, co-workers, family members, those we come in contact with, that they too might experience the freedom that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus as Savior. Do your work in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.